Welcome to Outside the Lines, the podcast of our hosts, Bob Cheviar and co-host Scott Shannon. Bob and Scott are longtime teaching pros in Westchester County, New York. They have both been ranked in the top 15 nationally in men's 35 and 40 and over singles and doubles. Bob is also the author of Deconstructing Tennis, the 4D System. Their goal is to help players gain a more in-depth understanding of many aspects of tennis, which are often inadequately addressed during the course of their development. Bob and Scott would love to hear from you on topics for future podcasts. Hi, all. Welcome to Outside the Lines. I'm your host, Bob Cheviar, and I'm here with my co-host, Scott Shannon. And today we're going to do a week one review of the Australian Open with the underlying theme that we're going to try to take each of the matches that we speak about and make it relevant to club players so that it can help you to prepare and do your best when you show up for your own matches. What can we learn from these top pros? So Scott, I must say, I mean, we we had a little bit of a break from talking a lot about just tennis. Uh, we we reviewed the King Richard movie, so we got into the movie reviewing end of uh, being a podcaster, and then we had our episode linking the tennis channel with Sinclair Broadcasting. So we got into the political end of podcasting. And I think now, and I'm sort of kidding here, I think we can get out of politics because the number one story at the Australian Open just before it started was Novak Djokovic. And should he get a vaccine? Should he be required to get a vaccine, et cetera? So at least that wasn't political, right, Scott? <laughs> and did you say Novak Djokovic or just or said, or Novak Djokovic? <laughs> <laughs> that was great great a great joke somebody uh told me and uh i couldn't resist passing that on i um you know there there's just this feeling just generally i mean everyone has their stance on this but i would only say the the idea that when you're in a tournament and there's a pandemic going on that you get to make your own rules is very problematic for me. I think you need to fit in with everybody else and make it happen. But one thing that make your own rules, I I know this sounds sort of biased, but players that wear their baseball cap backwards to me seem like people who are like, I don't I don't like doing what I'm supposed to do. I want to do it my own way. Did you ever have that take on the backwards baseball cap guys. Uh, that's funny. Uh, no, I never, I never really did. But the whole thing with uh, Djokovic uh, is parallel to uh, Aaron Rodgers making his own rules and uh, deceiving everybody about his vaccination status. And here you have two of the top players in their fields, I think just taking advantage of who they are and what position they hold and knowing that the, the world 
operates around making money and these tournaments operate around making money and the NFL does. And they think, well, you know what? They need me to make money. So I'm going to pretty much call the shots and do what I want to do. And I tell you, it's a little bit of a bad example for people and for juniors to see that these people, players, athletes in positions of power are throwing their weight around and using their status as a you know, way to just make it easy for them. And they thumb their nose at everybody else, like let them go by these rules and you know, go through all the machinations. So a little bit uh, disappointing with both of those guys. Though not very surprising with uh, Djokovic really, because here he went and had a tournament last year in the early part of the pandemic and didn't wear a mask and didn't do anything. And he got COVID, his wife got COVID, Dimitrov got COVID and, and, and a whole bunch of other people. So, I mean, it's just like really ridiculous when you start to add these things up. Yeah, I, I, I agree. But luckily for all of us, minus him, the tournament is going and there have been some great matches but there have also been some other developments relating to tennis. One of them is having automated automated line calling. Do you like that, Scott? I totally like it. Uh, I remember being so upset years ago when watching, I think, especially at the U.S. Open, but any of these top matches in these top tournaments and seeing that the match was tainted by a bad line call that a, that a linesman innocently could make or would make because the ball is traveling at such speeds. This is not an easy thing to do calling these lines within, you know, millimeters or centimeters of of being in or out. And so I think the automated line call has taken all of that by chance in terms of the ruling from an umpire or from a linesman and, you know, just made it fair right across the board and not ruin a top match and, and, and change the outcome of a very significant uh, tournament result. Yeah, but the, do you feel like the fans, you know, when they have a replay and there's that anxious moment of like, where is it? Is it actually in or out? And there's all the clapping and chanting. That doesn't happen anymore now because it's all, it's all just done. Do you think there's something missing for the fans there? Yeah, that was kind of fun and was an entertainment angle uh you know just a interesting little thing to get involved with and and show your enthusiasm but i think the more important thing is that the the line calling now is very like cut and dry mm -hmm. and it's fair and i think it's just really really good for the players and it's good for the sport so i'm 
I'm all for it. And you have to give up a little bit of fun from the fans being able to do that. Then so be it. Yeah. So uh, just a slight aside, one of my students was telling me she practiced with a particular player who sort of has a reputation for missing line calls, but she immediately made an excuse and said, I just don't think she sees that well. And I said, well, here's an easy way to see if your hypothesis is correct, because if she doesn't see that well, then at least half the time she should be taking some of your out balls and calling them good. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, if that's never happening, then we can be pretty sure that it's not a matter of not seeing so well. So keep that in mind, club players, when you're out there, you can get a pretty good beat on someone. And there are some players, particularly when they're calling uh, first serves, they don't do a very good job of really watching the ball and knowing if it's in or out. So that should balance out, however, if it's just a matter of not seeing so well. So like I said, we want to get into uh, a few matches here. One was one of my favorite young Americans is Seb Korda. And he went up in the first round against Cameron Nuri. And Cameron Nuri's a, a British kid who had quite a season last year, where he <clears throat> went from sort of 80, 90 in the world. And he actually entered the Australian Open as the number 12 seed. So he made a fantastic jump in level. But I wanted to talk a little bit about his preparation because the week before the Australian Open, he went to the new ATP Cup, which is like a Davis Cup format, where only top, top players in the world show up to represent their countries. He played three matches. Two of them were against people ranked in the top 10, and the other opponent was ranked in the top 20. He lost all three matches. And then when he went in against Korda, Corda had been actually um, in quarantine. He had caught COVID. He hadn't played a match. So it seemed on paper that here's this guy playing great. He's just had all this great competition. He got steamrolled three straight sets by Sebastian Corda. And my take on it, Scott, is that in going and playing all those great players the week before, he learned one thing how to lose and he forgot the winning mood that comes with building confidence for example in a tournament if he's now a seed he's going to play a couple of non-seeds on the way to let's say the quarterfinals during which time he's going to be building his confidence before he goes up against one of those extra top guys ranked near the top he, by playing this event, he didn't give himself a chance to do that. And I think it really hurt him. Did you used to, um, before a big event, would you consciously play a smaller event just to get some confidence going in your game? Yes. I would not really want to be going into uh, a major tournament without feeling like I was match tough. And so I would play and maybe, you know, more than just one event, it might be a string of events leading up to uh, that major tournament. 
but just feeling like you're in not only good physical shape because you have to train for you know all the tournaments so you're you're active and you're you're keeping in shape but just the fact that you're practicing your focusing techniques and getting involved with the tension of a close match potentially playing tiebreakers normally not changing surfaces trying to stay on the same surface if possible but yes i think that that's very important is to have yourself feeling mentally psychologically fit going into the more major event because of pre big tournament small tournament matches i totally used to do that before the big tournament for me was the Chestnut Ridge Pro Classic, uh, along with the New Jersey States and the New York States. But before Chestnut Ridge, I would always go upstate where I'd play people I didn't know on the same surface and get myself ready for playing in my own tournament and trying to do as well as I could. And it was great preparation. Here are a couple players, first round match, Sloan Stevens and Emma Raducanu, whose preparation was diametrically opposed to what we were just talking about. Sloan Stevens hadn't played a tournament for three months, and her first event was the Australian Open. So her nerves, to me, it's going to be very difficult to have your nerves in shape if that's how you're showing up for a Grand Slam. And Raducanu did enter a smaller tournament. They were having a series of run-up tournaments. But listen to this, Scott. She played and lost in the first round, six love, six one. <laughs> so her confidence was sort of shot also. And the score of that match, Raducanu ended up winning six love, two six, six one. But the giant swing came in the second set when Sloane Stevens stepped up her game. She was flat as a pancake and started ripping forehands and stringing together one forehand after the next, going run around and fantastically attacking the court, won that second set. And then she went right back and reverted back to the way she started the match and lost the third set 6-1. It's it is it hard for you to believe? I mean, it's hard for me to believe that a pro who has won the US Open doesn't know how to sustain a winning game plan. Yeah, the commentary uh, about that match was like people couldn't believe how horrible it was. Uh-huh. And from two, you know, Grand Slam winners. And obviously great talents. I mean, we've seen them play fantastic tennis. So we know that what they're capable of. But this really goes to what we've developed this whole podcast around. And that is the psychological and mental aspects of competing at a very high level in the game of tennis. And shows how delicate sometimes the psyche is with these players, men and women. And it's just really difficult to watch it happening on a level like that. 
at a major tournament like the Australian Open. I, I totally agree with that. So I have another match now. I, I, have you seen Harmony Tan play before? No, haven't. I, I wouldn't think but. you have, and neither had I. And I don't think her opponent, Alina Svitolina, had seen her play either. So they come out to start the match. Svitolina, of course, is a pretty high seed. I think she may have been like fifth or sixth. And for the first four or five games, Harmony Tan cannot hit the court with any shot whatsoever. And then all of a sudden, she started to make everything. <laughs> well, I call it putting your opponent to sleep. She was so poor that Svitolina was like, I don't even have to really play today. And she mentally left the court. And the match ended up going pretty close into the third set. Harmony Tan came back and won the second set. She was mixing in all sorts of drop shots and net approaches and really had Svitolina at her wit's end for, for a while there in the match. But it all started, I think, uh, by Svitolina letting up because her opponent was not playing well at all. Did, did you ever struggle when you were playing with, if someone you could assess that uh, they're just not any good? Did you, did you struggle with keeping your focus and ability to just get the job done? The answer is a big yes. <laughs> okay. Uh -huh. I'll tell you what, what I, what I found over a long period of time playing uh, matches was that one of the worst things that could happen is to win the first set six love. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can't really think you're going to win a set six love and have it be like, well, the score doesn't really tell what the, what, you know, tell the story. Usually that pretty much tells the story. Six love is so one-sided, but I think it's almost like a, like a, like a death knell because you, where do you go from there? It's just so difficult. You have to really dig deep to get your foot on the accelerator again and make things work. Whereas that player that you have just beaten six love is going to loosen up most likely and start to do things at a better level, just like Harmony Tan did. Mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden it's like that first set didn't really mean much. And you also have, I think, a funny feeling about it. And so I have seen this happen to many other people in many other levels of play, like down in the club level. And you have to be prepared that if you, for whatever reason, win that first set six love, and it seems like the other team just doesn't have, or the other player doesn't have an answer for what you're doing, you have to be very careful and very on top of things and mindful as you start that second set. So I can relate to what this what happened here in this match with Svitolina and Tan, because it seems to be a pervasive pattern at all levels of, of the game. Yeah, I used to tell myself when I get off to a good start 
and I could tell that I was just the better player also, that the opponent was just faking being weak and waiting for me to show a little let up. And then they were going to totally change their game, turn it on and come back and win. So I said, well, to prevent that, never let up, just keep crushing every single point so they don't get a chance to execute that strategy. Of course, that was totally made up thing, but it, it did it did help me stay and keep my matches much more clean than I might have if I had just responded to the fact that it wasn't that tough of a task that day. Right, right. So I want it ain't to... over till it's over, right? Right, right. So I'd like to talk a little bit about Corey Goff also, because she's one of my favorites. She happened to go out in the first round. She had a couple of good warm-up events. One, she went to three sets with Ash Barty. Anytime you're in there in a close one with her, you're, you're really playing some great tennis. And she played Wang Quang, um, a Chinese player who perhaps has one of the weakest second serves in the entire women's field. And Corey Goff returned that second serve from three feet behind the baseline. And of course, her winning percent against second serve was extremely low because she wasn't taking advantage of that weak shot. How, how, how could that happen, Scott? I mean, all these players have coaches. I think it's like... Tennis 101 to expose if someone has a weak second serve, that's the beginning of getting to their mind and getting them to freak out a little bit if you really go after that second serve. In this day and age, Bob, where the scouting information is so available and you can get a complete picture of who it is you're going to play and what their style is. And basically if these players are, you know, playing tournaments and whatever, everybody kind of knows everybody else and they know things about their games, right? There's no, there's no real secrets. Right. And so that this should have been something that, that was dealt with from the coaching level in a major way, because it's a real opportunity and you have to know how to do that. It's, it's, it's not, it's not as easy as it might seem, but the whole fact that you're standing back that far, like what is the rationale behind that? The ball's not moving fast enough to really like throw your timing off if you step in closer. Plus it's got to put pressure on the server if you're standing inside the baseline and then moving forward and hitting a fairly aggressive return almost every time the server has to know that that is going to be something that they have to defend against. And they're constantly going to have to have an answer to that to be successful in terms of holding their serve. And, you know, you should be attacking that bad second serve or that weak second serve in a couple of ways, not only like stepping in a little bit and hitting it harder, maybe hitting it cross court and pulling the player off the court a little bit, or, stepping in and chipping it down the line and coming to the net and just mixing it up and just showing that you're going to take over the point 
So the fact that she really did like nothing in terms of that whole reality is kind of appalling in my mind. Mm -hmm. Somebody needs to be fired. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. So uh, I have one other one I'd like to bring up. Nick Kyrgios played Medvedev in the second round. And this was one where, although the crowds have been limited to 50% of capacity, every single person on the grounds was in the major stadium to see Kyrgios play this match. And he is very entertaining, but I'm going to make the following point. And I think it's something that you were just alluding to. I think when you look at a draw, Scott, and you see that in your second round match, you have to play the number one seed before you step on the court. Have you made a conscious decision to take a few more chances when opportunities present themselves? Yes, because if you don't raise your game, you know you're not really playing to win. You're already defeated in a way. And I think that Kyrgios is guilty of this now going back for years that his approach and his attitude is just so cavalier, you wonder what his sincerity is. I mean, is he just working off of all that talent and whatever? But you just, you just, I, I really have a hard time figuring out what makes that guy tick mm -hmm. because his behavior is so erratic. And so like, why the heck are you a professional tennis player? Are, yeah. are you out there having fun? Do you love the game? Do you want to go out there and compete? Do the best you can? Be serious? Like, really, you know, with all that talent, it's just really a shame that most of it is squandered with the most ridiculous choices and complete collapses at certain points. The guy misses some of the incredibly easiest shots and then makes some of the most flashy shots that you'll ever see. So this volatility and this kind of polarized mentality that he has is just like difficult to uh, completely understand, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, he had brilliant moment. The third set where he beat Medvedev <clears throat> was a thing of beauty. Medvedev played well and Kyrgios just played brilliantly in order to capture that set. Whether he could ever do that for three out of five, we right. don't know. But where is that guy, right? You got to ask, where is that guy that played that set? Where is that guy in the other sets? Like, how about the first set? Because if you play like that in the first set, then you are putting some serious pressure on well, the that's, other players. That's actually Medvedev. where my example was going. In the very first game of the match, Kyrgios had Medvedev 15-40. And I think you know... Curios forehand versus backhand. Which which shot is the better one, Scott? Curios's forehand versus the backhand. Yeah, forehand. Well, it's he hits it harder, but the backhand oh. has typically been the one that's really solid. But also, he can unleash with with a hard flat one to either corner. So anyway, it's fifteen forty. And he's rallying backhand to backhand cross court with Medvedev in 
what I would call like second to third gear, just sort of pushing it in. And Medvedev is pushing it back. So Kyrgios was lined up for like three backhands in a row where he could have pulled the trigger there. Yeah. And imagine executing and breaking Medvedev in the opening game of the match. You talk about the way you get started. I, I really feel like if, if I were in that situation, I would have had it all planned out. Like if I'm getting a chance early and I'm getting a look at a ball where I know I've got a really good shot, I'm going for it. And he didn't do it. He got outsteadied after like a 20 ball rally. He, he missed one. And Medvedev went on to hold his serve with a, a few good first serves. I felt, I felt like that was a huge missed opportunity. So you think he played just too tentative there and too safe there when he had a very high reward situation and he he could have taken the risks because Medvedev was just going to be a wall and say I'm not going to like make an error yep. and I'm not going to you know I'm not going to do anything stupid because I know I can outweigh this guy. Exactly and and also I think it's pretty much across the board with the top, top players, when they get the lead, something happens like magic where they start to play better and better. They know how to use the lead as a way to use more of the court, hit with a little more pace, uh, that sort of thing. So to immediately be able to break Medvedev would cause a little doubt to get thrown into his mix even though it's so early in the match, I think it, it could have made a huge difference there. The other thing I remember from watching uh, parts of that match were, was that the, uh, the level of serving was such a key element for both of them because they both had like seriously effective serves, not only with speed, but with placement. And if Kyrgios could just win some of the points or like more of the points when Medvedev would get the ball back, he won a lot of points just off of his serve. Mm -hmm. And so he has, he has the potential to really be holding serve and going, you know, going at the guy a little bit more to break uh, more often. So, you know, again, I'm still kind of like at a loss to know what kind of game plan Kyrgios has. And I mean, I don't even really know about whether he has any kind of coaching on a consistent basis, but does he yeah. have to listen to anybody or what? Yeah, I'm not sure about his, his coaching situation at the moment. So there are a couple of big matches coming up tonight to start week two and I thought um, we both weigh in a little bit on what we thought was going to happen in these big matches one is Nadal against Shapovalov what do you think about that one well I think that it's a fantastic matchup because Shapo has done I think fairly well in maybe a couple of instances. Did he beat Nadal in Canada once? Yes, way back. Uh, right. Like and then when I he saw was a teenager. The, 
I saw him as a, at the U.S. Open the first time he was at the Open. Uh, I saw him there. I, I was sitting courtside indoors on the first Wednesday night, and he played Nadal. Or no, he didn't play. He didn't play Nadal. I saw him play, and I thought this kid is unbelievable. He beat Zonga so badly. Zonga, I think, was thinking about quitting the game, mm-hmm. and and has now quit the game. But okay. uh, but I know that he coming in, he had beaten uh, he had beaten Nadal up in up in Canada just previous to coming into the Open that year. And I think that he's been a little bit of an underachiever and he has problems with his serve, even though his serve has been like an unanswered question to Djokovic. Djokovic still does not know how to return uh, Chapeau's serve. And it's just the problem is that he chokes and gives away too many points at important times on his serve, where his serve is such a weapon. So there's a little bit of a dilemma. He's got to work that out, but he's been working his way up the rankings. So he's just so athletic and so incredibly dynamic. He can hit almost any shot from anywhere on the court. Uh, so uh, he's, he's just fantastic to watch. And to get back to your question, I think that he can, if he keeps his head screwed on, the right way i think that he can really give nadal some some headaches do you know what the head-to-head is i i don't know the head-to-head but i do know as a general rule nadal struggles much more against lefties, lefties. than when he plays righties because he right. he relies so much on two things that wide slice serve in the ad court usually going to someone's backhand Right. It's not going to be the case now. And he no. also relies on that heavy, high topspin forehand cross court into the righty's backhand. Now it's going to be going into the lefty forehand. So I'm going to go out on a limb and I've got Shapovalov in four sets. Right. I think it's hard to bet against that. I think there's a, uh, he's probably got like a 50 50 chance in my mind. If I had to uh, handicap it, I think there's a 50-50 chance that he can beat Nadal. Yeah, the only thing that I uh, to take the other side would be that you're not playing him now in the Canadian Open. You're playing him in a Grand Slam event. And the top guys know there's something else that they bring to the court typically in a Grand Slam. It's intangible, but it's definitely there. And so that should be an exciting one. Ash Barty versus Pagula. Yeah, well, I think Pagula is probably like affected by the fact that the Bills lost. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, uh, she's she's been uh, quite solid, but I think I got to take Ash Barty in that matchup because unless, you know, it's Ash Barty's match to, to win or lose, so it's really she can dictate the whole thing, but Pagula is hungry and really motivated. So I think that she's going to give her a pretty good battle. But I think Ash Barty is just too solid and just serves like on the dime. She does. And that really disarms so many of these female uh, 
players trying to receive serve. So I'm going to go with Barty in that one. Again, the great variety and ability to execute with their serve and the low skidding slice backhand. It's She's just got so many tools and they seem to be all coming together right now. So yeah, going back to one of our earlier podcasts, one of my lessons had asked me, what is scar tissue? And that's, of course, that's the stuff that accumulates in your brain when you've lost a match you really should never have lost is it going to keep being an influence when you come back to the court and i'm bringing it up here because ash barty lost in the u.s open to shelby rogers in a match in which shelby rogers went back to the girls 10 and under strategy and just blooped every ball and ash barty could not handle it so she then took some time off from tennis, but she is back now and she is back as strong as ever. And I don't see any evidence of scar tissue from that unfortunate loss at the US Open. So the final match I'd like to um, have us weigh in on is Berrettini against Gael Monfi. Uh let me just say first, Berrettini yeah. played an exhibition um, at a club here in Westchester. Have you heard this story or no? No. Okay, so he, he played an exhibition when he was like 18. And he's a very handsome guy. And at the end of the match, a bunch of people from the club were watching. He said, I will take some questions. So a woman raised her hand and said, will you marry me? <laughs> and then You're there were like seven or eight Chester others County. who said no will you marry me <laughs> <laughs> so anyway that's berrettini very handsome guy very charismatic guy big serve great attacking forehand backhand can be a little shaky and monfi is playing some of the best tennis of his life he hasn't lost a set and he's always a great mover. What what do you think of that one, Scott? I, I got to give it to Monfi. I think that he's really on a roll. I think that the fact that he has not lost the set is not going to make him less tough. Berrettini has been not struggling, but he's been playing longer matches, I think, at least the one a few, them, right? a couple of four setters, and then the fifth set tiebreaker with Alcaraz. Right. And so, you know, a lot of people say categorically, well, that toughens you up for, you know, later matches. And I guess to some degree that can be true if you go through the first week in these slams and you don't get pushed at all. And then you come up against, you know, one of the top players and, you know, there's a dynamic that's there. but. My feeling is that Malfi is just got like a head of momentum. And I think that Berrettini is the kind of player that if you can get on top of him early, you can, and if you play him smart, I think that you can keep Berrettini from really using that big forehand weapon. So you have to be careful of that and make sure that you manage that properly. And just hope that Berrettini doesn't serve like, 
you know, 70% of first serves with a, that big booming serve that makes it very difficult to break at times. What's your take on the uh, matchup between, I mean, Mofi can do pretty much everything, but what he does against Berrettini, I think is going to be interesting to take a look at. Well, I haven't seen him play a full match, but I have seen bits and pieces. And one of the things that Monfi always struggled with was playing high percentage tennis. At too many crucial moments, he tries something maybe a little bit flaky, and it usually didn't work out because it wasn't high percentage tennis. And he seems now to have his head screwed on really well and in the right place. So I'm going to agree with you and say Monfi is going to pull off the upset here. Uh, he's he's on a roll four. and he's four he, sets, probably four, four sets. sets. Berrettini's gonna he's gonna win a set for sure. I mean, with that serve, yeah, I would think he'd be able to to pull that off. So we're going to be back at the end of week two of the Australian Open to give all of you our thoughts about other things that maybe you could learn from watching the pros play. And in the meantime. Listeners, please enjoy the tennis this week. There's going to be more tennis on television as opposed to having to stream it in week two. So if you're not a streamer, you're going to get to watch more than you might have uh, in week one. Scott, thank you so much for joining me and have Thanks, a good Scott. evening. You too. Have a great, have a great night and I'll see you in a week.